Hello, and welcome to the September 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Lot Notes podcast. I hope all our listeners had a great summer. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up this month, we normally do our cover story first, but there is just so much interesting news on the marriage equality front. We're going to start there. Uh, Since we last recorded in mid-July, there has been another tidal wave of marriage equality news. Art, can you bring us up to speed? Okay. First of all, and I guess most significant for people, is the number of states in which same-sex couples can marry has not changed. Right. Despite all these developments, we're still at 19 states. A lot of states. Yeah, everything stayed. Everything stayed. The Supreme Court stay last January uh, set the pattern in the Utah case. Yeah. Uh, and lower courts, even it's, trial judges are reluctant and some are refusing, but then the courts of appeals do it. And if the courts of appeals won't do it, then the Supreme Court will do it. Yeah. And over the past uh, period, since July 15th, the Supreme Court has issued some stays, yeah. uh, most prominently the Virginia case. But just to hit the highlights, uh, and I'm not going to mention every single development because I have four pages of a list here of chronological development. So just the big ones. Uh, So, uh, you know, we recorded the last podcast on July 15th. So just two days later, we got the first decision in Florida from a trial judge actually in Key West who ordered the two gay men who uh, run a gay bar should be able to get married. Uh, And uh, that was followed over the course of the next few weeks by three other trial judges in Florida each in a different county. Uh, those opinions are all stayed pending appeal. Uh, all of those are on appeal to the third district court of appeal of Florida. Uh, the attorney general, Pam Bondi, yep. uh, suggested that all these should be put on hold. Uh, her reasoning is, and this is one of our other big stories, there is now an accumulation of several cert petitions at the Supreme Court from court of appeals rulings So she says, look, the Supreme Court's going to decide this. Why should my office expend time and money? Why should the courts of Florida be tied up with trying to decide this issue when it's going to be decided for us by the Supreme Court, Mm. probably this term? Why not just put everything on hold? And the Third Circuit Court of Appeal, District Court of Appeal of Florida said, no. The cases are before us. They should be decided. Uh, So they're going to be decided. Uh, Some of the parties have suggested that they skip the Court of Appeal and go directly to the Supreme Court since it's just a legal question, uh, and they said the legal question ultimately will have to be decided by a higher court. Uh, But uh, so far, the Third District Court of Appeals is not willing uh, to refrain from weighing in. Some judges want to write about this, you know. Uh, And meanwhile, there's there's another development in Florida that happened later in August. Uh, There was a case pending in the Second District Court of Appeal, an appeal from a refusal of a trial judge to uh, grant a divorce or saying that they didn't have jurisdiction to grant a divorce because of the Florida Marriage Amendment for a same-sex couple married in another state. And the Second District Court of Appeal did grant a request by the plaintiffs to skip directly to the Supreme Court. So they certified the question to the Florida Supreme Court. So we may have an argument coming up. Uh, The Florida Supreme Court does have jurisdiction to say no. Uh, We would rather have the Court of Appeal decided first. But it may go directly. So that's that's the situation in Florida on a state court level. Right. Uh, we also got a federal court decision in Florida 
Uh, and let me see if I can jump to it. I'm taking things out of chronological order now. So I remember it August happened 21st. during Lavender Law. I was with some Florida people yes. during Lavender Law. And it, right. was that, it was that weekend. Yeah, Lavender Law was uh, uh, toward the end of the third week yeah. in August. So August 21st, uh, U.S. District Judge Robert L. Hinkle in the Northern District of Florida in Tallahassee uh, ruled that the Florida marriage ban violates the 14th Amendment, but stayed his ruling in anticipation that the state will appeal to the 11th Circuit. And just a day or two ago, uh, we're, we're recording this on September 6th, just a few days ago, the state did notice their appeal in the 11th Circuit. So that's the first marriage equality case to go to the 11th Circuit. Uh, there are cases pending, of course, in all the states in the 11th Circuit. This is the first district court decision on the merits. Yep. Uh, so we're now in the 11th Circuit. Yeah. But we got other circuits to talk about yeah. first. Uh, our listeners will recall that late in June, it was the big subject of our last podcast, yeah. the 10th Circuit was the first court of appeals to rule that a ban against same-sex marriage violates the 14th Amendment. Uh, they had two cases before them, Utah and Oklahoma. They just ruled in the Utah case in June. The Oklahoma case presented complications that required more cogitation, mm -hmm. even though oral argument was held on the same day for the two cases. There were standing issues, uh, both regarding the plaintiffs and the defendants, oddly enough, mm -hmm. uh, in that case. Uh, so the Tenth Circuit issued its decision on July 18th, just a few days after we recorded our podcast. Uh, to nobody's surprise, since it was the same panel, it was once again on the merits two to one that same-sex marriage is, a is part of the fundamental right to marry under the Constitution and that the state had failed to meet any kind of test of heightened scrutiny in the case. Uh, but the complications were uh, this case involved two same-sex couples, one of whom wanted to get married in Oklahoma. The other were married in California in 2008. They wanted their marriage recognized in Oklahoma. And there was a real problem about who are you going to sue in these cases? Uh, this is this case took ten years to get to a decision by the court of appeals because it was uh, it was languishing before the district judge for the longest time. Uh, it was originally brought partly as a challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act that tells you how old it is, yeah. and it has already been up to the Tenth Circuit previously on the issue of standing and whether there was appropriate defendant. And the previous time it went up, uh, the Tenth Circuit said that the governor and the attorney general were not appropriate defendants in this case, that the appropriate defendant would be the county court clerks because the county court clerks administer the marriage license system in Oklahoma. So the case went back to the district judge to add the county clerk, uh, Ms. Smith, who uh, is now the uh, – actually now the petitioner to the Supreme Court, jumping ahead in our story – uh, so, so Clerk Smith uh, was the new defendant. And it was assumed by the plaintiffs that Clerk Smith could be the defendant both for the right to marry case and the marriage recognition case. But Judge Kern surprised them when he said, well, you know, I know that the, uh, the, the, the Tenth Circuit said you're supposed to sue the clerk, but the clerk, since uh, the amended complaint was filed, the clerk has filed an affidavit itemizing her duties and pointing out that she has nothing to do with recognizing out-of-state marriages, nothing whatsoever, that uh, out-of-state marriages are recognized when the issue comes up before whatever particular state agency it comes up before. Uh, so it's, it's not up to me, she said. So I'm not an appropriate defendant on the recognition case. 
and Kern agreed with her and dismissed the recognition case. So when this case went to the Tenth Circuit, both sides were appealing. Mm-hmm. The state was appealing uh, Judge Kern's decision that same-sex couples have a right to marry, and uh, one of the uh, plaintiff couples was appealing the decision that they hadn't sued an appropriate defendant. And so the uh, court had to deal with that. And the main – the first part of the Tenth Circuit's opinion said, well, ordinarily we would say since since we previously said that the appropriate defendant to sue for all of these plaintiffs was the county clerks, you know, we would go with that. We would say it's the rule of the case. However, because on remand there was an amended complaint filed and then there was new information because the clerk hadn't been a defendant the first time around, so there was nothing on the record about her duties – now we've got it, and we see it's inappropriate to sue her on the recognition claim. So they affirmed that part of Judge Kern's order, dismissing the case on the recognition claim. So the Oklahoma case in the Tenth Circuit is only a right-to-marry case. Yeah. Now the other distinctive part about this, and it's sort of unusual, that one of the judges wrote a concurring opinion solely to explain why the uh, court agreed with Judge Kern that there was no showing of animus against gay people by Oklahoma, that yes. adopting the ban on same-sex marriage was not animus against gay people. It was an affirmative support for traditional marriage and uh, specifically for the concept of uh, channeling, procreation, et cetera, et cetera, this argument that uh, actually won a few cases in state high courts back in the last decade. And this sent up some red flags with people yes. that this is not good yeah. for us at the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, well, that is Justice, well Justice Kennedy likes you know the animus theory, yeah. uh, and and this is one of the things that is dividing courts, you know, because the Tenth Circuit now says we see no sign of animus, and to once again jump the gun a little, uh, we we have a Seventh Circuit decision that came out on uh, September fourth. Uh, which we're going to talk about even though it came out in September because how could we not, yeah. where the Seventh Circuit, uh, uh, Judge Posner basically said, isn't this about hate? Isn't this about hate? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so clearly the Seventh Circuit sees the, that this is uh, animus is one of the things in this case, and the Tenth Circuit says no. And so we have a split in the circuits on rationale, yeah. even though they all reach the same result ultimately. So the Tenth Circuit – uh, ruled in favor of marriage equality, and a cert petition has been filed by Clerk Smith. Uh, another story, uh, a cert petition was filed from Utah. That was the first one. Yeah. Uh, the first cert petition on marriage equality since the Windsor case was filed on August 5th by the uh, attorneys for the state of Utah. And I mean, we have a substantial story about it in law notes. I'm not going to go into great detail yeah. here other than to say – that there is an emerging strategy among the states who are filing cert petitions. Uh, leaving out Virginia for a moment because the cert petition filed by the state of Virginia is on our side, uh, as they were in, our, in the oral argument. Uh, but the emerging strategy is don't bash gay people, don't express hatred, don't denigrate gay people. This is about federalism. That's how these cert petitions are being framed. Mm-hmm. This is about who decides who can get married in a particular state, the state or the federal courts? And the argument is this is some something where the federal courts should just butt out, that, the, that the, the issue of defining marriage is up to the states. And this, of course, totally ignores Loving versus Virginia. And the other cases. And the other cases. Yeah. You know, the, the, a state can't deny the right to marry to a deadbeat dad. A state can't deny a right to marry to a state prisoner. Right. You know, and 
clearly the federal courts have a role in deciding whether a state restriction on marriage is valid. So uh, I don't think that's a winning argument. But that's the way they're framing it. And and I think politics may have as much to do with this as anything else. Everyone knows that it is highly likely that the Supreme Court will take one of these cases, and it doesn't really matter what you argue in the cert petition. Uh, What matters is how is the question framed for the court on review? And that always boils down to the same question. Does the 14th Amendment prohibit the states from excluding same-sex couples from marriage is basically the question for the court. And then just something to add about the Utah uh, case, we should talk about a couple heavyweights have joined uh, the Utah oh, yeah. case. Yeah, uh, well, w- what we have is the uh, the plaintiffs in Utah, and this is this is really amazing because the local attorney who argued before the Tenth Circuit did a masterful job and won a big victory, yeah. but she's going to step aside. Uh, they brought in the heavy guns. They brought in Neil Katyal from Washington, who uh, was acting Solicitor General in the Clinton administration for a while, and who argues so frequently in the Supreme Court. He already has a full book of arguments. In the current term, he's already arguing four or five cases. Now, if, if the Utah yeah. case goes up, he'll be arguing this one. But also, the heavyweights from GLAD in Boston, who uh, won the uh, marriage equality case there a decade ago, and who also won the Gill case uh, on uh, DOMA. And our honoree this year. And our, our honoree at the Legal Dinner, yes. Mary Bonato. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's really exciting. They put together a, a, a monster team. And yeah. also, they already have NCLR, so yeah. they have Shannon Minter. Yep. And Kate Kendall and Shannon Minter, of course, argued in the California Supreme Court yep. in the marriage equality case there that was a victory. So it's a it's a heavyweight team yep. to rival the heavyweight team in Virginia of Boys and Olson and, and of course the ACLU because yep. James Essex, the director of the ACLU Gay Rights Project, also argued in Virginia yep. on behalf of the Harris versus Rainey class action group. Yep. So you know, just keeping all these straight in my head is so difficult. It is. And some of this is in my notes and some of it's not. Yep. All right, so so we've got the Tenth Circuit decision. And then uh, the next week on July 23, we had two decisions in Colorado, one in federal district court, one in state court. Uh, it's clear the, uh, the Colorado courts are also heading in the direction of marriage equality. The uh, federal district judge said, well, look, this, this opinion has really been written for me by the Tenth Circuit. You know, I don't have to say a whole lot. Uh, so the only real issue to the judge uh, was whether to stay. And he said, well, you know, it's, it's sort of a different issue for me than it was for other district judges because there are already two Tenth Circuit decisions out there. So clearly the plaintiffs have, uh, you know, uh, the appellate court that has jurisdiction over me has already held that they have a constitutional right here. He said, but, you know, they have stayed their own decisions pending Supreme Court review, so I really shouldn't let this go into effect. He, he says – Marriage shouldn't go into effect till it really goes into effect. We're not looking for one of those situations where people are rushing to the courthouse to get married before a higher court issues a stay. So he issued a stay, which seemed consistent. Uh, but then the next big news, just a few days later, July 28th, the Fourth Circuit was heard from. So the Fourth Circuit was uh, ruling on a combination of two cases. Uh, the Bostic case, which was uh, originally brought by private counsel, but then were joined by AFER, the American Foundation for Equal Rights, with Boys and Olson, and the Harris versus Rainey case, which was a class action brought by the ACLU with uh, assistance from Lambda Legal. Uh, they're in two different districts. Uh, the Bostic case uh, had a decision uh, early in 2014, uh, and uh, there were uh, 
petitions for review within the Fourth Circuit pretty quickly. The Harris v. Rainey people had just gotten their class certified, but they hadn't gotten to the point of a decision on the merits. They asked to be allowed to join in. And the judge in that case agreed to stay the proceedings in, in the class action case uh, to give them a chance to go to the Fourth Circuit because, after all, the Fourth Circuit's going to control in both districts in Virginia. Uh, so the Fourth Circuit issued a two-to-one decision. Uh, as with Oklahoma, we had one dissenting judge. As usual in these cases where we have a dissenting judge, it's a real old-timer who was appointed to the court by Reagan you know, or the first President Bush. These are the people who have been federal judges 20, 30 years. They grew up in a different world where they weren't openly gay people, you know. Yep. So I think there's a generational thing with some of this voting, uh, although I'm, I would be going too far out on a limb on that because Posner is a real old-timer too, and uh, he wrote the most vociferously pro-gay decision I think you could possibly write in the Seventh Circuit, which we'll get to. But uh, this decision was uh, pretty solid and pretty much in the mold of the Tenth Circuit decisions that uh, – same-sex couples are being excluded from a fundamental right to marry. And so you have heightened scrutiny, and you don't have to worry about whether sexual orientation gets heightened scrutiny. That's not a question that need be decided. Uh, so they also decided it on a, a due process. And we did get ground. a dissent in the Fourth Circuit. And we did get a dissent from an old-timer judge yes. who said, well, Baker versus Nelson controls this. We can't decide this. Yeah. You know. Uh, and the, the Baker versus Nelson trope, which uh, the, when we lose now, it's because of Baker versus yeah. Nelson. And, uh, you know, you could be mad at, at Jack Baker and Mike McConnell for bringing that case back 40 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, they couldn't have foreseen all this. So, And they're still around, which is they nice. Are. They're around to see this. Yeah. They're, they're around to, the, to see the fact that their state, Minnesota, has same-sex marriage. Yeah. By legislation, of all things, after a referendum was beaten back. I mean, pretty incredible. Very gratifying. So, yeah. Fourth Circuit, and uh, in the Fourth Circuit, we had the state of Virginia on the side of marriage equality. So, it was county clerks who were defending the marriage ban. Uh, the county clerks have both filed cert petitions. There were two county clerks in the case one uh, who was allowed to intervene, and the other who was being sued directly. Uh, but the state of Virginia argued on behalf of marriage equality and surprised everyone by being the first to file a cert petition. And they're, they're sort of like the federal government filing a cert petition in the Windsor case. You know, they won in the Court of Appeals. The Solicitor General of Florida participated in the oral argument on the side of the plaintiffs and won. And now they're appealing to the Supreme Court to affirm their victory. Yeah. Very unusual. Yeah. Uh, so there are three cert petitions on file in that case. Uh, so that's the Fourth Circuit. And uh, – the next really major uh, developments were oral arguments in the 6th and 7th Circuit. Uh, oral argument in the 6th on August 6th, and uh, most people who were watching, uh, listening, they don't, they don't video cast, they only audio, uh, audio recordings on the court's website, uh, couldn't predict. It's, it's hard to predict how it's going to go. Yeah. It could go two to one against us. It could go two to one in favor of us. It really boils down to Judge Jeffrey Sutton. And a lot of people have said that Judge Posner tried to get his opinion out first. To try to, to influence? influence Sutton because oh, they're I both don't know. conservatives. Yeah, but Sutton is of a, of a later generation. Uh, I mean, uh, Posner is of a generation of conservatives that uh, were socially very libertarian. And I don't know the degree to which that describes Sutton. Yeah. We, we won't know until the Sixth Circuit opinion, which right. we're still waiting for. Right. Uh, so the Sixth Circuit heard oral argument. That was on cases from Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee, 
all four states in the circuit had cases where marriage equality won at the trial court level. Uh, so that's, uh, we're waiting. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we have further developments in August that we should talk about. Uh, we finally lost a few yeah. for the first time. Uh, first time since Judge Shelby in, uh, in Salt Lake City ruled in favor of marriage equality last December 20th. Since yeah. then, it was an unbroken string of trial court victories plus the two courts of appeals. And then on August 5th, we ran into Circuit Judge Russell E. Simmons, Jr. of Roan County Circuit Court in Tennessee, who was asked to grant a divorce to a same-sex couple who was married elsewhere. And, you know, state court judge, but uh, they're making federal constitutional arguments because he's raising the issue that he doesn't have jurisdiction. He says, uh, Tennessee has a marriage amendment. Uh, I'm not allowed to recognize your marriage. How can I grant you a divorce if I can't recognize your marriage? And they said, well, that marriage amendment's unconstitutional. Another court has said so. You know, there's an appeal pending at the Sixth Circuit, but right. another court has said so. But he says, well, that's not binding on me. Yeah. Uh, so he says, Baker versus Nelson. He says, Baker versus Nelson suggests that me, a lowly trial court judge, I can't buck the U.S. Supreme Court. He says, if, if anyone is going to find an exception to Baker versus Nelson based on subsequent developments, it should be an appellate court, not me. So he's basically saying to the to these guys, look, if you want to get a divorce, you're going to have to go to the Court of Appeals. Yep. Uh, so that was his view. Uh, and furthermore, uh, because of the rather unusual marriage recognition statute in Tennessee, it was hard for them to make an equal protection argument. Mm -hmm. In some other states, uh, you can attack a marriage recognition uh, ban by saying it's singling out gay people. But not in Tennessee. It seems that Tennessee will not recognize any marriage from out of state that couldn't have been performed in Tennessee. So uh, Tennessee doesn't like first cousin marriages. You go out of state and have a first cousin marriage, it won't be recognized in Tennessee. Tennessee doesn't care for polygamy. Well, no one cares for polygamy. But if you happen somewhere, uh, you know, in, in some other country that allows it, because some countries do, uh, we're still not going to recognize it. So they said, he said, there's no equal protection problem here. Uh, the best that gay people could argue is a disparate impact. And disparate impact is not actionable under the 14th Amendment, only intentional discrimination. So, you know, no, no chance for an equal protection argument there. So that was August 5th. That broke the string, but that, that only broke the string as to state courts. Uh, and so we really need to mention that since then, the string has been broken by federal court. And that's in Louisiana. Now, Louisiana has been our problem state all along. Louisiana was actually the only loss between Windsor and today. Already in 2013, a magistrate judge threw out an attempted marriage equality case. Mm. Uh, first of all, saying, because the only defendant, it was a, I think it was someone proceeding pro se. The only defendant they named was the attorney general mm. of uh, Louisiana. And, the, and the ma it was a magistrate judge. And the magistrate judge said, well, what does the attorney general have to do with recognizing your marriage? You know, it was a recognition case. So we don't see that they have anything to do with it. Uh, so they threw it out and also said, by the way, Baker versus Nelson. <laughs> they always mention Baker versus Nelson mm -hmm. when they're going to throw out one of these cases. Uh, so that one went back and it was refiled and it ended up before a federal district judge. Uh, this is uh, an 80-year-old federal district judge who was appointed by Ronald Reagan. You know, in Louisiana. In Louisiana. And uh, so the district judge ruled actually just uh, 
the day before the Seventh Circuit's ruling, uh, District Judge uh, Martin Feldman. Talking about lifestyle. Oh, the, uh, the opinion is replete with somebody who doesn't know the politically correct way to talk about gay issues yes. today. <laughs> you know, this is – and as I'm saying, it's a generational thing, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know the diversity of the federal district bench in Louisiana, but uh, I, I would speculate that Feldman isn't necessarily characteristic of all the younger judges and yeah. his attitudes, but we ended up before Feldman. So, yeah. so uh, the – uh, plaintiffs are now represented by counsel in that case, and they indicated they're going to appeal to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit has already received an appeal from Texas on the ruling from last spring, uh, so the Fifth Circuit already has a case pending. Maybe this will be combined. Uh, so really, the uh, the remaining major development to discuss, and we're really using up most of our podcast on marriage, as usual, is the Seventh Circuit decision. Yeah. Uh, this is... We should back up one second, talk yeah. a little bit about the Seventh Circuit for our listeners, because I yeah. have a feeling many of our listeners maybe don't know all this stuff, but the Seventh Circuit is sort of famous as having judges sort of on both sides of the spectrum that are yes. really outstanding. Yeah, um, the, the, the Seventh Circuit uh, includes Illinois, which we don't have any litigation pending in because Illinois passed a statute right. last year. Uh, but... Uh, these cases came up from Wisconsin and from Indiana. Indiana. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the Seventh Circuit, it's, it's a real crapshoot in the Seventh Circuit. Yeah. We've got some of the most distinguished conservative federal circuit judges in the country on yeah. the Seventh Circuit and also some very, very liberal judges. Uh, the chief judge was almost on the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. She was the shortlist for the yeah. Kagan seat, Yeah, uh, Diane Woods. So, I mean, there's some very famous judges on both sides but, there. But, but they're... I would say that the the all-star on the Seventh Circuit is Richard Posner. Yeah. Uh, Richard Posner, uh, back before he was a judge, he was a uh, professor at the University of Chicago Law School who is the author of the leading treatise founding the School of Law and Economics. Any law student in America reads yes. countless Posner opinions decisions. by him in, in, in Posner opinions many are in areas the case of the books. law. Yeah. Yeah. I teach contracts. There are Posner opinions. Yeah. I teach employment law. There are Posner opinions. Employment discrimination. There are Posner opinions. Incredibly prolific. So, very prolific. He is known as one of the fastest writers on the federal bench, and he also writes all his own opinions. Uh, there are a handful of judges who are famous for writing their opinions and not delegating first drafts to clerks. Uh, Justice Stevens on the Supreme Court was famous for that. Oliver Wendell Holmes was famous for that. When he was asked, why don't you hire more clerks, he said, what for? I don't need them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, clerking for, clerking for these judges is about uh, looking up stuff for footnotes, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so Posner's fast, and if, uh, if Posner has a decided bent on a case, he probably has his opinion drafted before the oral argument. And that's what we suspect here yeah. because the argument was on uh, September uh, – no, August 26th. Yeah. And the opinion came out on September 4th, less than two weeks later. So, And from internal references, it sounds like he finished the opinion on September 2nd because he mentions visiting certain websites to get certain information. And he says, last visited September 2nd. Yeah. And, all of them. So and you, the, you see, he was working over the Labor Day weekend on this opinion. And he became a bit of a folk hero even after the oral argument. Oh, uh, especially there, after the oral argument. There were plenty of memes going around social media with quotes from the oral argument. Yeah, what happened was... Uh, as I put it in, in my article in Gay City News, I said that the panel roughed up the attorneys from, the, from Indiana and Wisconsin. Uh, the Solicitor General of Indiana argued and an Assistant Attorney General from Wisconsin argued, and they just got demolished. I mean, and they ran into the Posner buzzsaw, and, and he has a reputation. He comes in. If you've ever heard of a hot bench, any bench with Posner on it is a hot bench if he's really interested in yeah. the issues, and he was here. 
He's written on this subject. He published a book decades ago called Sex and Reason about the treatment of sex, broadly speaking, under the law, including chapters on gay marriage and all this kind of stuff. So uh, he has decided views on all this. And he came in, and he set the tone in the oral argument right from the start. Uh, He said, well, you know, isn't it true that same-sex couples adopt kids? He was. This was in the Indiana argument, which went first. He said, doesn't Indiana allow same-sex couples to adopt kids? Yeah. Not jointly, but, you know, they can be raising kids where one of them has adopted. And he said, well, those kids don't enjoy the rights and the benefits that kids adopted by married couples enjoy, don't do they? And, and why does the state think that they should get lesser protection and lesser benefits than the others. What is the rationale for that? And they start with this channeling procreation stuff. And I mean, and he says as much, this is absurd. You know, this isn't rational. And it was like on almost every issue that came up, Posner was commenting how irrational or absurd or unbelievable. He called it savage discrimination. Yeah, he, he talked about, you know, isn't this about hate? He says, isn't this about hate for gay people? And that made its way into his opinion. Uh, You could see that he would probably start a draft in the opinion already because many of the phrases that he used in his questions and comments from the bench show up in the opinion. He probably already wrote a lot of it, although uh, there was probably a lot of fact-checking afterwards. So that's what took the time. But this is the first unanimous Federal Court of Appeals opinion that we've had. The other two judges... Uh, one appointed by Clinton, one appointed by Obama, uh, and their questions were more restrained and polite, but it was very clear that there were all three judges coming from the same direction. Uh, so, And there was no mention in the opinion that was issued of a stay. Now, I think circuit rules would stay that until the uh, court issues its mandate, the opinion uh, doesn't take effect, and presumably they withhold issuing a mandate uh, pending a petition for on-bank rehearing or a petition for cert. And uh, it was immediately announced by the attorney generals of both states that they will file cert petitions. They're not going to seek rehearing on-bank because they've counted the numbers in the Seventh Circuit with Obama's appointees as now majority Democratic appointees. And they lost Posner. And if they lost Posner, they're probably losing Easterbrook, who is one of the other famous. law and economics yeah. famous uh, Reagan appointees on the Seventh Circuit. So... Uh, they read the tea leaves and they say, we don't have a shot at the Seventh Circuit on bank. Maybe we have a shot at the Supreme Court, and it all comes down to Justice Kennedy. But to get back to the merits, yeah. uh, during the oral argument, all three judges signaled discomfort about the idea of treating this as a fundamental rights case. They were really pressing. Uh, James Essex, who was arguing for the ACLU in the Wisconsin case, uh, they were pushing him really hard how do we circumscribe this right to marry? Does it apply to incest? Does it apply to, are we going to have people coming in saying the state has to show a compelling interest? Uh, and, uh, you know, James did his best, but it was clear that they were very uncomfortable with the idea of treating this as a fundamental rights case. And sure enough, uh, the opinion is an equal protection case. And Posner goes through the various factors that have been examined by the Supreme Court and says, well, clearly this is a suspect classification. Uh, Sexual orientation is clearly a suspect classification. There should be some kind of heightened scrutiny here. But then, although I don't think he says it expressly, it's not necessary because we don't find any rational basis in anything the state has told us to support excluding same-sex couples. 
And as you say, he really, uh, uh, I think, was channeling uh, what Justice Kennedy was saying in the Windsor case about animus. Although I don't even recall if he used the term animus, but he certainly talked about hate uh, and savage discrimination. And, you know, he said the most vilified uh, discriminatory And he referred to it as an, an immutable characteristic. He said, it, he said it's an immutable. And he, he, there was like a whole page of citations of scientific articles and stuff about, uh, about enzymes and, you know, hormones yes. and all this kind of stuff. So uh, clearly he, he considers sexual orientation to be biologic. Yeah. Uh, but that's neither here or there. It's it's and we got heightened scrutiny. So we, now we have another circuit. Well, move. yeah, we got heightened scrutiny, but uh, it's just a three judge panel. Yeah. And I'm even a little concerned that he took that, that that maybe he didn't really explicitly address what he might have addressed, and that is the conflict between this holding on heightened scrutiny and prior Seventh Circuit authority, because there are older Seventh Circuit cases that don't go for heightened scrutiny. Yeah. Uh, and normally a three-judge panel is bound by that. Yeah. Uh, so only an on-bank panel can, can change it unless, as the Ninth Circuit pointed out in the Smith-Klein-Beecham case in January, unless Supreme Court rulings have changed the playing field. Mm-hmm. And right toward the end of his opinion, he talks about uh, the Ninth Circuit opinion and uh, this court's agreement with the Ninth Circuit that Windsor changes the playing mm-hmm. field. Uh, and then sort of as a parting shot at the end, uh, the uh, attorneys, uh, and I think this was from Wisconsin, uh, said that the uh, district court's order was not specific enough, uh, that since they would be threatened with uh, penalties uh, if they refused to fail to comply with the order, they needed a more specific order. Uh, so Posner wrote, well, they didn't ask the judge for a more specific order. You know, why not ask the judge? Yeah. Why not frame a proposed order and present it to the judge? If you, that's your problem. That's not a basis to reverse the trial court. You know. Yeah. So, well, it was a big win. Yeah. It was a big. So, where do we stand now? At the Supreme Court, we have cert petitions on file from Utah, Oklahoma, and Virginia. Uh, the court's first conference of the term is September 29th, but I don't know if they've added these cases. They already had a long list of cert petitions that had accumulated since last spring. We should also note this week a lot of amici. Yes. Briefs were filed. And Mickey Briefs was filed. 32 state attorney generals. Uh, there were two groups. One was attorney generals from states that have marriage equality. They filed amicus briefs asking the court to take the case that it will be nationwide because it's unfair that people who get married in their state aren't respected in other states. Yeah. And then there was an amicus brief from states that don't have marriage equality yeah. saying to the court basically, you've got to put an end to this nonsense. Please take this case and stamp out this marriage equality movement. Yeah. So uh, although they, they weren't quite as crude as that, and that's sort of what their aim was. Uh, so clearly uh, the Supreme Court's under a lot of pressure here. The uh, respondents to all these cert petitions filed responses. They, I think they're all on file now as being responded to by at least somebody. Uh, and all the respondents say to the court, please take the case. Take the case. No one is arguing that the court shouldn't take the case. Uh, and now that the uh, Seventh Circuit has ruled, uh, I expect a cert petition will be filed, as the two state attorney general said. How quickly they'll do it, don't really know. They they have uh, several months, I think, to file a cert petition. But the big question now sort of looming is when will the Supreme Court conference this issue? 
uh, probably not on the September 29th conference, but they meet regularly once the term is underway. The mm-hmm. uh, first day of hearings is the first Monday in October. So after that, they'll be reading, meeting regularly. Uh, with the Windsor case, uh, they received their cert petitions rather early in the fall of 2012, but they didn't make a decision on whether to take a DOMA case until December. Yeah. But it still got argued in March and decided in June. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as they could they could grant cert as late as November or December, and we would still get a decision this term, mm. most likely. And at the Supreme Court, it's it's uh, it's premature to do too much speculative talk now, but uh, it'll all turn on Justice Kennedy, as usual these mm-hmm. days. Yeah. All right. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we will be discussing President Obama's historic amendments to two very important executive orders. All right. We are back discussing President Obama's historic signing of Executive Order 13672 on July 21st. Uh, Art, can you tell us about this executive order? Okay. This executive order amends two prior executive orders. Uh, One is Executive Order 11478, issued by President Nixon in 1969, about non-discrimination in federal employment. Uh, That order was amended by President Clinton to add sexual orientation during Clinton's second term. Uh, What uh, President Obama does in this new executive order is to add gender identity. So uh, now employees of the executive branch of the federal government who encounter discrimination based on sexual orientation can file complaints with the Civil Rights Office and their department. Uh, This is all administrative. The president cannot create new laws enforceable in federal court. So these are administrative remedies uh, through uh, uh, the EEOC, get my getting involved, the Justice Department. And the other one that he amended is EO 11246, the famous uh, government contractor executive order issued by President Johnson in 1965. Uh, Johnson issued that order just months after the Civil Rights Act of 64 went into effect, and the purpose was to provide a mechanism for requiring federal contractors to comply with Title VII, basically. Uh, now, Title VII has not been expanded to cover sexual orientation, although now we've had a few courts sort of nibbling around theories uh, to include sexual orientation uh, under the uh, sex discrimination requirements. And quite a few courts and the EEOC adding gender identity uh, as a matter of interpretation. So theoretically, since the executive order uh, 11246 covers the Title VII categories, uh, it already covers gender identity although uh, it's only within the last few weeks that the Labor Department has actually issued a clarifying guideline saying, yes, it covers gender identity under sex. But, of course, President Obama just added gender identity to the list, so you don't really need that. Uh, So this adds sexual orientation and gender identity on federal contractors. And uh, gay rights lobbying groups have been pushing for this throughout the Obama administration. It seems that when he was running in 2008... His uh, gay rights agenda in his campaign included an executive order. But after he was elected, uh, they made the decision in the White House that we're going to push for the Employment Non-Discrimination Act and not do anything that would get in the way of passing the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. Mm -hmm. And it was certainly perceived from signals from the White House, it was clearly perceived 
that issuing an executive order was like throwing a red red flag, waving a red flag in the face of the Republicans in Congress. They, you couldn't pass the statute without the cooperation of the Republicans because they had enough votes in the Senate to block it by a filibuster, even in the first term. And uh, at the midterm election in the first term, the House went Republican, and it stayed Republican. So you're not going to pass it through the House unless the Republican Party is willing to bring it to a vote uh, because they control access to the floor. There are enough Republicans who might vote for it that if it went to the floor, it could pass. But there are also problems with ENDA that uh, really surfaced in the discussion after the Senate passed the current version uh, about a year ago. All of a sudden, people were saying, well, just a minute, ENDA is awfully narrow. It only covers employment. Why don't we cover all the federal discrimination statutes? Why don't we have a comprehensive gay rights bill, which is, in fact, what we used to have until ENDA was devised in uh, 1996 on the hope that something really narrowly focused could pass through Congress, mm -hmm. uh, which turned out to be a vain hope. It, it came close in the Senate. It was never voted on in the House back then. Passed the House uh, during President Bush's second term, but didn't go anywhere in the Senate, uh, and that version didn't include gender identity. And then the new version passed the Senate, but it's not going anywhere in the House. And I think uh, House Speaker John Boehner said often enough in response to questions that there will be no vote in the House, that finally the administration was persuaded it's time to do an executive order. So the executive order applies to companies that contract with the federal government. The one sort of dramatic last-minute debate issue uh, arose because of the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision from June of religious exemption. Uh, to what degree would federal contractors that have religious objections uh, to employing gay people, would they be able to claim an exemption? Uh, President Bush had actually amended this executive order uh, to allow religious organizations with government contracts to discriminate based on religion. That is, they can, uh, let's say you have a Catholic welfare agency that has a federal contract to provide services to poor people. Uh, they can prefer Catholics in hiring. So, And then the Supreme Court has recognized a so-called ministerial exemption, which says that religious bodies... Uh, have total autonomy to pick their ministers, and the government's not going to interfere. They can, they can say ministers have to be male. They can say ministers have to be white. It's not up to the federal government because of the free exercise clause. Uh, so the Supreme Court has said that's a constitutional requirement. Uh, the Hobby Lobby case was uh, an interpretation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a federal statute. But either way, people were concerned that there are lots of federal contractors we get money from the federal government, especially under these faith-based initiatives that President Bush introduced and that President Obama has continued, uh, the idea that, uh, that religious welfare agencies uh, are in many communities the best established organizations to provide social services. Mm -hmm. So the federal government will contract with them to provide services. Uh, and now those agencies are going to have to sign statements as part of the contract, that they agree not to discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. For some of them, this is going to present quite a challenge to their theology. Uh, and so there was a lot of pressure after the Hobby Lobby decision by religious lobbyists for the president to adopt a broad exemption for religious organizations uh, to be able to discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And uh, to the delight of the gay community lobbyists, 
he didn't back down on that. He said, well, you know, we're not going to change the Bush Amendment. We're going to allow religiously affiliated organizations to prefer members of their own religion. But they're not allowed to discriminate based on race or sex if it's a non-ministerial position. You know, they can't discriminate on that basis. We're, we're not talking about ministers. We're talking about social workers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about clerical employees, janitorial employees, uh, nurses, you know, things like that. And why should they be able to discriminate based on sexual orientation? And so I see lots of litigation in the future under this. Uh, it's not going to go into effect till 2015. Uh, it's prospective. It means it, uh, the, the president can't unilaterally alter contracts. Mm-hmm that have been entered into, but as contracts expire and are for renewal, this non-discrimination requirement will be part of the new contracts. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to sign. And if they're unwilling to sign, they're going to be denied the contract. So they'll go to court and they'll sue and claim it's violating their rights under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and we're going to have a brouhaha which will end up in the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. I predict, Yeah, probably within, within a term or two. And uh, we got a little in the weeds there, but we should say... Uh, the number of people that are affected by this is really... Estimate 2 million, perhaps, yeah. perhaps more. And some we've noted in the article, 20% of private sector employees work yeah. for an employer that contracts with the federal government. Uh, although uh, I'm not sure how far this, this extends in terms of all their employees are just the ones who work on the federal contracts. But one prominent example that we're all going to be looking at is ExxonMobil. Right. ExxonMobil sells an enormous amount of energy to the federal government. And ExxonMobil is one of the few holdouts among the largest corporations that do not formally ban discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, so they're going to have to bite the bullet on that. They, they claim that they will comply, but we'll see if they actually adopt the policy or if they just sign the contract. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Art. We're going to take another short break. And when we return, we'll be discussing an interesting parental rights case out of New Jersey. All right, we are back discussing the case of KAF versus DLM, a New Jersey appellate division decision that revived the parental rights claim of the former domestic partner of a birth mother. Art, can you tell us about this case? Okay, this involves three women, all lesbians, all of whom claim to have parental rights with respect to the same child. And uh, it's a bit of a complicated story, so we'll try to get it right. Uh, KAF and F.D. were a couple. In 1999, they started living together. In 2000, they bought a house together. They decided to have a child. K.A.F. became pregnant through donor insemination. Their child was born in December 2002. The court calls the child Arthur, which is a pseudonym. Uh, Although their relationship became strained, leading to them living separately, KAF did not do what a lot of the biological mothers do in these cases and shut out her former partner. In fact, she allowed her former partner to adopt as a co-parent, which can be done in New Jersey, and they got a new birth certificate showing KAF and FD as the legal parents of Arthur. But they were estranged. Uh, No reconciliation took place. They were living separately, and KAF subsequently became involved with DM, who was a friend of both of the women. And DM moved in in the fall of 2004, and DM began to assume a parental role towards Arthur, the child who was living in the house. 
uh, and that continued for six years. Uh, during that time, uh, New Jersey had passed the domestic partnership statute, and the women registered as domestic partners. So KAF and DM were registered domestic partners, raising Arthur, and uh, FD was Arthur's adoptive co-parent and had active visitation, active participation. So we have three women all playing parental roles at various times. Some dispute as to whether FD ever stated objections uh, to the degree of parental role that DM was playing. Uh, DM claimed that uh, FD knew and had no objections, but that's a disputed fact. But at any rate, uh, as sometimes happens, KAF and DM came to a parting of the ways. But KAF, who was so magnanimous in allowing her, uh, her first partner to continue visitation, allowed uh, DM for a while to continue uh, uh, visitation as well but uh, eventually shut out DM. And they, they had dissolved the domestic partnership, and uh, DM now says, look, I became a parent to Arthur. I participated from uh, the age of 18 months for six years. I was participating, taking him to school, doing the PTA thing, you know, everything you do. With so she said, I'm now a parent, and I should be able to petition for custody, joint custody, and visitation. Uh, and the trial court said, well, hold on a minute. You know, third parties can only petition as psychological parents if they formed a relationship with the consent of the child's legal parents. And the legal parents are KAF, the biological mom, and FD, who is the adoptive mother and who is an active participating parent. And I mean, the trial court just couldn't wrap his mind around three simultaneous parents uh, and so dismissed the case. said that when you have uh, two legal parents who are fit parents, who are actively uh, participating in raising the child, you can't introduce a third. It just it can't be done. Uh, certainly where it is not clear that both of the legal parents have consented to this, and uh, FD was not consenting to this. Mm -hmm. uh, so it went up to the appellate division, and the appellate division took the position that the welfare of the child is paramount. You know, if the uh, second partner of the child's mother, DM, had in fact become a psychological parent, it would be harmful to the child, or it might be harmful to the child. These are facts to be determined because the, uh, the trial judge dismissed the case. We don't really have a hearing record and, and well-developed uh, facts. Right. But you know, it might be harmful to the child to suddenly disrupt a relationship with a parental figure with whom that child had grown up. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the court said, furthermore, we see nothing in our law requiring that both legal parents had approved the formation of this relationship, had in, invited in the child. It's enough of one legal parent does it. So we don't have to find that anyone is unfit here to be a parent in order to entertain the possibility of a third parent. And so the case was remanded. It's, it's rather a, an extraordinary yeah. case. Yeah. It's a case of a court putting the welfare of the child 
above the interests of the various parents yeah. or parental claimants. And California has created California has a statute, yes, yeah. to acknowledge this yeah. third parent situation. But I think what they were thinking of in California, the, the more normal thing was the idea of a lesbian couple and a male sperm donor right. all having uh, some kind of parental status. Yeah. But theoretically, this case would fall into that as well. Yeah. If, if a child has multiple beyond two psychological parents, uh, why not? Yeah. The so more, the merrier, the a better. A bit of for the a child. heartening decision that uh, yeah. sort of acknowledges some of the realities of I, I modern would, modern life. I would say, resorting to the to the book by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, yeah. it takes a village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're assembling the village here. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to take our last short break, and when we return for our of note segment, we'll be discussing a New York decision involving a really horrifying incident a gay man has alleged took place at his gym. All right, we are back to wrap up with our of note segment for this edition to talk about Waters v. Town Sports International Holdings, Inc. Uh, the decision by a New York Supreme Court justice to deny a motion to dismiss included a very troubling set of allegations made by a gay man against his gym, New York Sports Club. Can you tell us what happened, Art? Yeah, this, this is uh, an incident that happened on the evening of December 30th, 2013, at the 200 East 36th Street location of New York Sports Club in Manhattan. Uh, the, the plaintiff, Brian Waters, says he did his workout. He went to the steam room. Then he went into the sauna. There were two other guys in the sauna. And according to Waters, they were just sitting there in the sauna soaking up the heat when suddenly this guy comes in, whose name he doesn't know, but he calls him John Smith for purposes of his allegations, and starts yelling at them, homophobic slurs. And, you know... What the fuck is going on in here, you disgusting faggots? Pardon my French. This is an allegation. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and saying, you can't do things like that, and here I have people who train here. So it's uh, probably a trainer, not an employee, but an independent contractor. So probably not an employee of New York Sports Club. But the allegation is that there was a New York Sports Club employee, a janitor, who was standing outside the sauna looking in through the window and who uh, joined in on some of the imprecations and that another New York Sports Club employee was nearby and took no action to stop it. And uh, the Mr. Mr. Uh, Waters was absolutely terrified and that Smith was blocking him and the other two men from getting out of the sauna and leaning against the door, and they had to shove the door to get out, and then they were harassing them while they were in the locker room and calling him names while he was trying to get dressed and trying to block him from leaving because they said, we're going to call the police and arrest you. I mean, Mr. Waters describes a horrifying incident. Yeah. He was mortified. He was shocked. Uh, he ended up uh, finally escaping and running away, although Smith gave chase but didn't catch up with him. Uh, so, uh, and they tried to, they demanded that they wouldn't let him leave unless he surrendered his New York Sports Club ID. Uh, so he brought a discrimination case. He's also claiming intentional infliction of emotional distress. Uh, and uh, the motion to dismiss was brought by New York Sports Club. They said, we don't have any anti-gay policies. We have no knowledge of any of this stuff. These people had no authorization to do this. Uh, you know, uh, we never heard of this John Smith person etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and uh, Justice Edmead took a look at this, and she said, well, you know, for a motion to dismiss, I just look at the factual allegations in the complaint, and I think he's made a pretty good claim of discrimination here. Uh, on top of that, 
it's very, very unusual to survive a motion to dismiss on intentional infliction of emotional distress in New York. Uh, theoretically, the courts recognize the tort, but they almost never find that the factual allegations are sufficient, not sufficiently outrageous. Well, Judge Edme looked at this and she said, this, this makes it. Yeah. This clears the bar. Yeah. So she refused to dismiss the uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Now, of course, it may be that when the case goes to trial, uh, alternative stories will be introduced and be more persuasive. But as of now, based on the complaint, I mean, as a New York Sports Club member, when I read this opinion in the New York Law Journal, I was shocked. Yeah. I was like, you know, could this happen in my gym? Yeah. Although... I've never seen anyone go into the sauna at my gym. It always seems to be out of order. <laughs> <laughs> so not at your location. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm, I, I use the West 73rd Street location all most right. of the time. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have today. If you are a local listener, I'd just like to put in a plug for our Perspectives on Marriage panel. It's coming up on September 17th. We have some phenomenal panelists, including Art, uh, that will be participating. Uh, check out our website for more information and to register. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please uh, become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like this podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar and Y or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in October. <laughs>